Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. We are kicking off Rabbi Schatz's favorite book of the Torah, Vaikra. And uh, here we go. Uh, the, good, the good news is uh, not a lot of narrative to catch you up on heading into our chapter because, well, for most of the book, there's not a lot of narrative. Um, and truthfully, we're, we're, we're starting at the, at the beginning of, of a parak pretty much. Um, so there's not even necessarily a lot of backstory or backfill in terms of like what's going on ritually um, for, for what we're going to be talking about. Just as like a, a broad framework for what we are going to be exploring, um, one, one of the other ways that Vayikra is referred to as in our tradition is as Torat Kohanim, right? There's, there's this idea that there's a, a the, the rules and rituals contained in this book seem to be specifically, not just ritually focused, but because they focus a lot on the sacrificial system, which was conducted by the priests and the Levites, there's a sense that this is kind of a, a different flavor um, from the rest of the Torah. And, and there are a lot of very, very specific, almost picayune details in terms of how the rituals can and should be conducted. Emphasis on should, like, like a lot of concern about getting the details very right. And it is, right, a little bit tricky to look, not in terms of a system that's very detailed, but a system that is pretty foreign to us, right, when we think about worship and ritual and spiritual engagement, um, entrails usually aren't included, at least for me. Um, and as I often say, um, if you see someone coming into synagogue with, with a goat that they're ready to sacrifice, um, either you're in the wrong place or they're in the wrong place, but that's usually not how we do things at Temple Bethon, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of um, spiritual system and it was one, right? It, it, it was embedded um, in how we, as B'nai Israel, did things. And so it is certainly interesting and, and, and I would say worthy to try to look at a system that is pretty far removed from where we currently find ourselves religiously, uh, ritually, and spiritually, and to try to see what and how we might draw from it in terms of our own understanding of ritual, spirituality, and so on. So that's the very big picture framework I'll offer for our anchoring text for these next few weeks. Rabbi Schatz, any additional meta thoughts on Vayikra? No, I, I think that, that it, um, no, I don't have any more meta thoughts on Vaikra. I will add, however, um, it's my pet peeve when people say no, and then they start talking for 10 minutes. So I just wanted to to explain that. Um, thank you. Uh, this is the time in services where you often hear the rabbis kind of expound upon the holidays that are coming up instead of the parshiot, because it is hard for us to find elements of these parshiot in Leviticus as connected to our own lives. And so the rabbis joke that, you know, from, from Leviticus to like Deuteronomy, we talk about 
you know, sports teams and the news and the holidays and, and you don't get as much of There's the, some good stuff in Bamidbar. There's some good narrative in Bamidbar. Yeah, I'm not saying every every single Parsha. I just I think that it's it's good for you all to know that this is going to be a part of the Torah that that Rabbi Shapiro, I was about to call Rabbi Klingfeld, Rabbi Shapiro and I are going to spend much more time kind of diving into than we might do if we were even given giving um, drashot during this time. So it's a nice uh, it's a nice exercise for us as well to be able to go deeply into the parshiot that rabbis tend to um, tend to find other opportunities to speak about other things instead while we're in these books. There's some good stuff in there. You got Mishpatim, which is great. You got, you know, Bahar, which was my bar mitzvah portion. So that's always... And therefore perfect. And therefore phenomenal. There's good stuff. Some of the stuff in Dvarim is also pretty rocky. You know, yeah, it's a yeah. grab bag. Yeah, okay. Anyway, th- that was that was my opinion, okay? Okay, well. Your turn. I respect it. And in we go. Um, okay. We're basically going to dive right into Kushiot after looking at the verses, because we're just going to be starting at the beginning of chapter four in Vaikra. We're going to skip over this uh, first verse, um, because Rabbi Shatz and I are very skilled at, at plumbing depth and meaning out of each and every verse of the Torah. By the Barrett and I, and Shelley Moore is a little tricky. Um, so we're just going to look at, oh, hey, okay, there we go. Oh. Verses uh, two and three. Verse two gives a meta framework for what follows. And then verse three gets into the the first detail of the framework. And I think both are quite, quite interesting to explore and dive into. Daber El Ben Israel and Moore speak to the people of Israel saying, Nefesh ki techeta bishkaga mikol mitzvot Adonai. So a, a nefesh, I'm, I'm going to intentionally not translate that word for now. A nefesh that accidentally, even translating this next word is tricky, like that accidentally chotez, that unwittingly chet is usually translated as sin, but it's a tricky word. So I'll just like name it that way. A nefesh that unin, that that accidentally sins out of all of God's mitzvot, out of all of God's commandments, for the things that you aren't supposed to do, right? So there are things, as we know, in our religious system that you're not supposed to do, and in this case, there's there's I mean, nefesh most easily translated as person, accidentally messes up, right? Accidentally does one of those things. And and does one of them, right? So there's these things that you do, that you're not supposed to do, and oops, accidentally you do them. That's like the the sort of topic heading for everything that follows in this in this chapter in this parak, right? That when you're in a scenario where you have made a mistake, you you've done something that you weren't supposed to do. What do you do then? How do you sort of resolve that lingering question? And then what happens over the course of the rest of the chapter is different categories of people and how they're supposed to respond. We're only going to go with the first one of these, which is in verse three. Im ha-kohen ha-mashiach, interesting word, yechatat la'ashmat ha'am, if the anointed priest, right, because mashiach, which usually we translate as Messiah, but it just means anointed, right? Anointed with oil. If the anointed priest, 
which oftenly understood as the high priest, if the anointed priest incurs guilt, like messes up in this way, so that there is blame or guilt that, that um, I, I read an interpretation of this that flipped it around, but I'll go with the translation here. So that blame falls upon the people. He should offer for the sin for which he is guilty. Uh, a bull of the herd without blemish is a sin offering to God. He should offer this, this category of the chatat offering. There are different kinds of offerings that we see over Leviticus. There's the chatat offering, the asham offering, the shlamim offering, right? There's lots of different kinds. And so the high, the high priest who messed up has the obligation then to, to make, to make this offering. Um, any more that I say on these verses, we'll start start giving away some of the pieces that I'm interested in exploring. So I will mute myself and turn things over to Rabbi Schatz to lead us in the Kushia part. Okay. <clears throat> Does anybody have any Kushia out? Um, so on these two verses, if you want to just uh, zoom in a bit, Rabbi Shapiro, um, any words, any concepts you have questions about? Yes, Karen. What kind of sin do you do on intention? Just asking. Great. And, uh, that's my Fantastic. Yeah, Jay. Why does the bull of the herd have to be without blemish? Why do, oh the bull of the herd. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. Why why does the why does the bull have to be something um so kind of kadosh, so uh uh untouched? when when given as a sacrifice for this particular type of sin great uh bonnie and then joanna and then barbara and then renee why does the sin that the priest did fall on the people why are they blamed awesome that is my question as well yeah joanna that was my question as well so (laughs) great we're all we're all on the same page well we should ask Robert Shapiro if that was his question. Uh, okay, Barbara and then Renee. Where, where does the priest obtain a bull, a herd of, of bulls? Uh, the, the priests are supposed to have had nothing. The people had to bring them food. Where do they get a herd of bulls? Great. Fantastic. So is this something that the priest has? Is it something that the people give to the priest? Um, are the are the animals, you know, waiting for sacrifice and therefore the priest takes one of them? Great question. Renee. Um, why is nephesh referred to as guilt and not soul? Number one. And number two, when they talk about the commandments that uh, that a person didn't do or did do, are they referring to the Ten Commandments? Great. So nefesh is not referred to as guilt. Um, ki techeta is referred to as guilt when a person person is nefesh. Um, so nefesh means soul, but often in this part of our Torah, and also a little bit earlier on when people are referred to as B'nai Yisrael, kind of as a collective often, they are referred to as nefesh as opposed to individual humans. So um, the English is correct. It just, um, you were matching it with with uh, different words. So ki techeta is the incurring guilt piece. And then, yeah, wh- what which 
which commandments are we talking about? Are we talking about the Ten Commandments? Are we talking about other commandments? Rabbi Aaron Alexander um, gave a really fantastic drush in my cousin's bar mitzvah a few weeks ago, uh, where he talked about how the commandments that are given a few weeks after the Ten Commandments are given are actually the ones where God says to Moses, and these will be the Ten Commandments as opposed to the Ten Utterances, which is what is used as a terminology for the, what we call the Ten Commandments. So. Which commandments are we talking about here? Um, and is it the first set? Is it the second set? Or is it the commandments that were given to us um, in the many parshiot that just list out rules? What are we What are we referring to here when um, when a person kind of doesn't do them? And again, to go back to the question of what does it mean to also not do them uh, knowingly? Right, the things that he didn't do, or the things that they did do, either or. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like they, right. Uh, yeah, Denise. So is a question here, but also because kind of in general, how come it doesn't seem to spell out the connection between an offering for the Lord and these different sins? Like, I would expect it to say, you know, this is going to address the sin in XYZ way, which I can't even conceive of what that is. But Presumably, there's some connection because it's all over the place, but it never tells us. Can you can you say a little bit more about what you're asking? I'm not sure that I'm following what you're asking. So, like, there's different mitzvot that you know that tell us do this so that your days are lengthened, sure, or because sure. it's kind, or I want you to be holy, or yeah. all kinds of things. Where you know, even with the rules of Shabbat, all over the place, it says that these are given with love. Yeah. Right. But like, but with all the sacrifice stuff, it tells us you have to do this and this and bring this for that. And these animals for this and this blood for that. But it never draws a line between what do these things have to do with each other? Why are we doing this? Got it. I see. I see. Yeah. So it seems like it's kind of one-off situations or potentially like based on the person as opposed to the general, uh, what everyone would receive from either doing these commandments or the way that everyone would be connected if they did this, then the other thing. Very interesting. I've never thought well, about and, it. And even anyone, like why, why right. is this even part of what we do? Right, right. Great. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Okay. Um, Rabbi Shapiro, do you want to start? You have to unmute if you're going to start. You're still muted. I was thinking if I wanted to start. Oh. Do you want me to start? Yeah, why don't why well actually I don't know what you're focusing on. What are you focusing on? That implies I focus on anything. That's fair. Um I there there are a lot of great questions that were asked, and each of them were pulling me in in a direction that I was thinking about going. I'll offer like one comment. I mean, I'm I'm struck by by the question Karen asked to begin with, and then there were some questions about the the high priest specifically, um, and mm -hmm. how that works. Um, so maybe I'll maybe I'll go there, and then I'll I'll toss it over to you, and then sure. does that work? Groovy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> book book recommendation of the day. Um, spirituality of imperfection. I don't know if folks, Karen, Karen made a face. Karen's nodding. N yeah, good one. Yeah, see if you can find it yourself. Um, really good book. A lovely compilation um, pulling from like different wisdom traditions um, into like different kind of themed chapters, including 
certainly including Judaism, other world religions, uh, 12 Steps of AA. It's a really, really great book. Um, and Karen, you know, you, you asked, right, like, how, how can you sin unintentionally? Um, I was saying, I was saying to Rabbi Schatz that when we were talking about what we wanted to talk about, and I was saying, I, I, I could do an hour long riff based on like, P- different pieces I picked up along the way at Beit Shuva alone. Um, you know, w- when I worked there, we would talk a lot about how chet is actually an archery term, right? So this idea of of sin, which carries carries a very strong connotation, both because English is a Christian language and also because it sounds like just generally a very aggressive word, but it's actually much closer to to a sense of missing the mark. Right. When you when you shoot, right, that that you don't always hit the target. And so then you're left with the question of, okay, how do how do I develop um, better aim? And I think that that in the context of doing something accidentally that you might not have known, it's like, oh, I thought I was I thought I was pointing my my arrow in the right direction. Turns out I actually should have been aiming a little far further left. Um, That's very different than like, you know, sinning unintentionally just sounds very different. At the very beginning of the book, um, there's a quote that says, uh, it's, a, it's actually a, uh, a quote from a former baseball commissioner, Commissioner Faye Vincent, uh, but he talks about how errors are a part of the game, right? Spirituality teaches us or has taught most of us how to deal with failure. We learn at a very young age that failure is the norm in life. Errors are part of the game part of its rigorous truth. Um, and that's part of why I, I, I like this construct and I like this chapter. It's this idea that, yeah, you're, we're, we're not perfect, right? We're, we're going to mess up. There are going to be mistakes along the way. The question isn't, how do I be perfect? The question is, given that there's a code of conduct, there's certain things I'm supposed to do. There are these meets vote. I'm supposed to behave in a certain way. Sometimes I'll get it right and sometimes I won't. And I just think it's it's a beautiful, even within a system that feels somewhat archaic, like it, like a system of animal sacrifices, I do think there's a really profound truth in terms of this idea, setting it up and recognizing that that there are going to be slip ups and stumbles along the way. And then it's a question of, okay, well, well, what do I do about that? And I think that's and I think that's lovely. Karen who has virtually raised her hand and no, is now waving it. me that's off. That's it. That's what I was saying. What? Yeah. Okay. So do I just say, I'm sorry. Or what do I do about that? I get that. Sometimes we just, but it seems, then you have to get a bowl and you have to do, I mean, it seems like a bigger deal. Oh, but maybe what happened? I, you know, I don't. I, right. And, and I think that then gets into the question of um, what falls in the category that like the specific category here in terms of what, like what are, the slip-ups for which this specific action needs to be taken. And, and there's a few different interpretations of that that I saw and, and people are asking about that. Um, because because if it was like every time that I like tracked mud into the house, I needed to go find like, you know, a, a bull from the herd without blemish. Well, I, I would be out of bulls very quickly, right? So like, so like what what's the category exactly? And I think that that's, a, that's a, an important question. And I'm just, I'm, sort of like first zooming out to talk about that more conceptually. But yeah, like how how do you know um, what falls in that category? Skipping ahead a little bit, I did see one understanding when it comes to the high priest, like 
there's an understanding. This is tipping into the second thing I was planning on talking about, but like the high priest, some people say it's like, well, the, the leader needs to have a really high standard. So it's any slip up that the leader makes all the way to someone else who said that, no, it's in a very specific context. It's only when the high priest is engaged in the actual sacrificial service, if he messes up, that he then needs to make an offering because that's where his leadership for the people is really efficacious, right? The rest of the time, whatever, live your life, man. But in this case, it, it's more directly applicable. So I think, I think that is part of where the question comes at. And I do think that that's an interesting question as well. Yeah, Joanna. As you were talking now and kind of like, you know, that acknowledgement, that recognition of like, yeah, you know, we're going to mess up. Um, I'm starting to think that this is actually very profound, right? That, that the tradition is distinguishing between, you know, what's happening when you're like sitting at home by yourself, when you're sitting at home by yourself, are you thinking to yourself, like, I'm really going to try to be the best person that I am? Or are you sitting at home and like, plotting to do something wrong. And then in the real world situation, those become two very different things. I really am striving to be the very best person I can be. But in the moment, I was tempted to do something wrong. Something caught me off guard. I did something wrong. And, you know, sort of that recognition of the difference between those two kinds of thoughts and, hey, for this, you know, for this slip up that just happened in the moment, because it's, part of the human condition and our, you know, our Yetzer Hatov and our good intentions don't win out all the time. It's what it means to be human. Um, I think it's very profound that there's an acknowledgement of that and a sense of like, you can do, there's, there's a way to do Tshuva for that. And, and like, you know, to get back to that person that you want to strive to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's more in that like second category that you're talking about. I think it is like that sort of, that that slip up that happens even with your best of intention. Though it's interesting, right? It's like how, how much do you want to talk about conscious, conscious and unconscious, right? Did you really make a mistake, or were you hoping? You know, were you hoping when you said, "Oops, I accidentally sent you that email that was meant for someone else." Was that really meant? Right? Did you really send that email by accident, or was that you, you know? Um, I'll 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 leave that to those who know more about the unconscious than I do. But I think. I think generally it's this sense that, yeah, you're really trying to live your best life and, and, and you slip up. When I was, when I was in rabbinical school, we were learning Masachet Shabbat with Ramimi Feigelson and I had never heard the term shogeg, uh, which is the word that is used here for unintentionally or by mistake. And the opposite of that, which is mazied. And when you're learning about this in Masachet Shabbat, you, um, the way that it is used in the specific context that we were learning it was, if you forget that this is a law for Shabbat, and then you do something, the, um, the punishment is less than if you remembered that that was a law on Shabbat, and you did that thing. So this is not the example that we were talking about, but I'll just use it. If you, if you are cooking on Shabbat, because you forgot somehow that cooking is prohibited on Shabbat, then your prohib- then your punishment, sorry, is a lower status punishment than if you remembered each and every Shabbos that you couldn't cook on Shabbat. And my question to her as a young rabbinical student was, 
how can you say to the person who has made the mistake that they forget if in saying that they forget, you know that they once knew, right? Like what's the, how can the, how can the punishment change if what you're basically saying is last week you knew not to cook on Shabbat, you forgot this week? So to Rabbi Shapiro's point, like what, how are I don't we- know, man. I forget stuff all the time. I I feel like that's very relatable. I I forget stuff all the time. So. No, but it's but it's but it's not relatable in terms of the the kinds of things that you would do as practices, right? You're not you don't forget to brush your teeth. You might choose not to brush your teeth, but you don't forget. Like you don't forget that that's something that you that disagree. You I have forgotten to brush my teeth. I definitely have. Okay, so the idea of Barbara's, show- Barbara's with me on this, but me and Barbara forget to brush our teeth. There Fantastic. I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so um, the the thing, and Ramimi, Ramimi agreed on this account that like the rabbis are are clearly putting into place these ideas of shogeg and mazid of of forgetting and remembering based on intentionality. Are you in a state of mind to intentionally remember something because you know it's what you're supposed to be doing? Or are you maybe subconsciously, but probably with a little bit of intention, forgetting something because it allows you to do something else that you know is not within the construct of um, of what you're supposed to be experiencing or or acting upon. So I just wanted to add that to Joanna's point because these terms come up in a lot of ways, not just around sacrifices that allow us as people to to kind of play that mind game of was this something that I once knew, but now I'm not putting as much attention towards, or is it something that I'm actually trying to forget so that I can have more leniency uh, in whatever the action is? Rabbi Shapiro disagrees, but that's okay. We're going to move on. Renee. So I, it just the whole discussion that you and Rabbi Shapiro are having now got me thinking about when I was studying Misilat Yasharim, that it's not that, that the whole concept of the slippery slope and that if we allow ourselves to um, to do something that maybe isn't such a big deal, that's that's a, a a negative thing, even if it's not such a big deal. That by doing it, it will then uh, cause a higher likelihood that we'll do more of that or bigger of that. Mm-hmm. Right, and th- yeah. there 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 is a there is a concept that I've seen. I'm forgetting where I've seen it, but like that, if if you are someone. Right. Like, let, let's say you are someone who has kept Shabbat like very strictly your whole life. Right. The way the, the way this text talks about like how, how the Yetzer Hara works. Right. The Yetzer Hara won't come up to you and be like, hey, go to a concert and eat a bacon, right? drive to a concert and eat a bacon cheeseburger while you're at the concert paying for it. And then like writing your name in graffiti. Right. While you're at the concert to break Shabbat. That's not how the Yetzer Hara works. The way it'll work is like, oh, you usually hold by Eruv, but your friends over there and like just carry like a little snack over to your friend's house, right? Yeah. That like, if there's a way, like if you usually keep things very, very sp- right, strictly in a certain way, the way the Yetzirah works isn't going to say abolish it, right? go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. It's just going to sort of like scooch you along right in like a very specific way right so renee to your point that this sense that um there there is 
We're giving the cat lunch. The cat is the cat is now the cat has replaced the children as like the supporting character in our in our classes. Um, a little distracting. Okay, pay attention. Um, I, it's distracting. We're feeding the new cat. It's okay. distracting. But you're not feeding the new cat, so you can pay attention. But someone else is. Okay. Um, this sense that calling attention to that specifically helps hold that boundary to, to keep your attention on what's going on. Um, Denise, I, I see the questions you're asking. I'll, I'll toss in. I saw as, as I was prepping um, a little quote from Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. She said, why do we, why do we atone for inadvertent sins? Perhaps because we were insufficiently attentive to what we were doing. Right. So it's a matter of like, of calling our attention back to what's going on. Denise, I don't have a great answer for, for like unintentional and then like causing pain by killing an innocent animal. I think part of that is just embedded within the concept of a sacrificial system, which, which we obviously have moved away from for a host of important and very good reasons. But I do wonder if like it's, it is a pretty substantial action for a reason to kind of like snap yourself back to attention to say like, okay, I wasn't really paying attention and there was still a consequence here. And I'm walking around with the sense of, oops, I made a mistake. What do I do? So I need to like very proactively seek out and do something, not just to like atone, but to bring myself back into paying attention to where I might not have been paying attention. And and that makes that makes sense to me as as a construct, I think. Also, if we look at the word that's used for sacrifice, it means closeness, right? And so this idea of being closer to God, closer to um to to things that are made by God, right? So either humans or or animals, um, that that allows us to feel as though we are somehow reaching that higher that higher state of relationship. Of course, we now think of that as prayer, right? We don't go around killing animals for that, but that. As Robert Shapiro just mentioned, you know, back in the day, uh, that was what was seen as a way of finding that closeness and that um, that intimacy with God. So even just in the in the word that is used to mean sacrifice, we see that that our people believed that those sacrifices were being done for that sense of of close connection. Yeah, Barbara. Would it have been good enough just to say that God told us to make the sacrifice as opposed to any other, the, you know, we were people that believed in God and therefore we had to make the sacrifice because we were told to do so. And, and, I, and, and I mean, admit that that takes away some of our, of our um, humanness of being able to have choices and to do what we think is correct. But in this case, I feel like maybe that they took, they let that that be taken away from them, and they did the sacrifices. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have a good answer for that. I don't know. I, it's sacrifices for me are a really hard thing to wrap my head around because, other than the statement I just made prior to your question, there's no way for me to really connect myself to what that experience was like, nor why people were doing it, because just so foreign. So I don't really have a good response. I don't know if Rabbi Shapiro does based on his own thoughts or things that he might have found, but I don't know. Barbara, can you can you lay out for me the distinct, I, I think I missed the distinction you were making at the beginning of, of your well, I, I You know, we, as, as 
people, we have the ability to make to, to know right from wrong. But as people that were believing in God, they may not have thought about right from wrong. And God told them, you're going to do a sacrifice if you do what I consider to be wrong. Um, and, and maybe they just blindly went ahead with doing what what God told them to do without their own thoughts of whether it was right or wrong, whether it was cruel to hurt an animal, mm-hmm. to be able to right the wrong of a human being, which I I agree with Denise with what she said. Got it. So, so you're you're naming it as like were were people really aware of what they were doing, or was this sort of like a blindly going along? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I would frame it like this. I, I would say that there, if you were to show how we do Judaism today to an Israelite from, you know, 750 BCE they would be just as confused about what we're doing as we are confused about what they're doing. Right. They'd be like, so you're not in Israel and you have these scrolls, but there's no priests. And also what's that language you're speaking and what's a computer, right? Like, I mean, what's a computer, Um, but, but there would be a, a lot of confusion on their end as well. Right. And they'd be saying things like, you know, they'd be probably asking us about, like gasoline and ruining the environment and our carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff, like killing animals, who cares? You're destroying the planet. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but, but I think just, just as for us, I think for them too, there would be a lot of questions about it. I think the ancient Israelites were a lot of things, but I don't think they were stupid, nor do I think they were blind. Right. I, I think there was some awareness around the intensity of what was happening. And I do think the intensity is there for a reason. Um, it makes me squeamish. It makes me uncomfortable. But I do think it's it's being taken seriously. And I think for me, that comment from, um, from Hirsch makes at least a little bit of sense in terms of getting you to pay closer attention to what you're doing so that hopefully you won't have to go to that really intense step of needing to bring a sacrifice. Like, By and large, I don't think there was a desire to bring sacrifices of this type, right? You want to avoid mistakes. Um, So maybe that's a piece of it too. Yeah, Joanna and then Denise. So two comments. What you just said about, you know, um, you know, generations past recognizing the development in Judaism reminded me of the Midrash that's told already about um, Moshe, who goes to visit the Academy of Rabbi Akiva and is completely lost and has no idea what's going on. So, which to me speaks to the fact that that exists, an acknowledgement that the tradition is going to evolve. Um, Specifically with regards to sacrifices, you know, as this conversation and, you know, per some of the comments in the chat, very difficult for us to understand. And the only way that I get kind of partway there is sort of realizing that this was a thing in cultures and religions in the world at the time. So, so what Judaism was doing was trying to come up with the way um, to do it Jewishly within certain parameters, you know, notably no human sacrifice, you know, as disturbing as we find animals. There were cultures that, you know, had human sacrifice. 
What I've always had an incredibly even more difficult time with, um, and thank gosh, you know, the conservative movement changed their liturgy, but like in the traditional Orthodox liturgy that you pray for the restoration of sacrifices, that we would one day go back to that. To me, you know, there's a sense of like, we've evolved and we do different things, things differently now. And I cannot in any way, shape or form wrap my head around any notion of, you know, sacrifice has some place in some future form of worship. Yes. I'll, I'll like, I'll, 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 I'll sort of like nod to that and recognize the challenge. And Denise has her hands up and I want to, I want to spend at least 10 minutes on that, that second verse, but yes, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that as well. Um. Okay. So I want to just totally agree with Joanna about like, I'm longing for Corbinat. I'm, I'm just not, you know? So, um, so I, I always feel a little weird with those parts of, of the prayers. Um, one thing that jumps out is let's say like on holidays and Shabbat and Musa, there's like all these extra sacrifices going on that don't seem to be connected to atonement. So that's one thing that's, that just kind of stands out. The other thing is, so this kind of started to go into my head a few years ago in Rome, we were at the Colosseum. We went for Pesach and we were at the Colosseum. The Colosseum is supposedly built with stones from the second temple. And it just started me thinking of like, you know, those days of sacrifice are not that long ago, you know? And if you go to Greece, like the Parthenon predates the Colosseum by a lot, you know, it's already kind of in the modern era that we were slaughtering sheep and goats and bullocks and all kinds of things. And, and other countries weren't doing that. The Greeks and the Romans, and they, they were not doing that. The human sacrifice was like in Latin America, even a couple hundred years ago. But in, but in that part of the world, that it was over. Nobody was doing that anymore. And it just kind of freaked me out. Uh, yeah, I mean... 2000 years ago is, is still a long time ago, right? Like it's, it's still a while ago. I mean, it's uh, long, but like we have literature from there. We have buildings yeah. from there. We walk around, we touch that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. sit on those yeah. chairs. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I mean, the, the, I'll just quickly say in response to the first thing you said, um, yes, like the, there are plenty of other, sacrifices that were not of this type, right? There were specific sacrifices for Shabbat and for holidays and all of that. It, it, it was bound up in the like religious, spiritual, ritual tradition of what ancient Israelite worship looked like, right? We, we know that. And, and again, we have transmogrified, that's a technical rabbinic term. We have transmogrified um, what that system looked like into like Musaf, right? Like I remember very clearly there, I, I grew up as I think, I, I think you guys, many of you know, I grew up like a, a pretty like con, little C, big C conservative, conservative Jew. I don't know who was more of a poster child for the conservative movement growing up myself or Rabbi Schatz, but it's a, it's a pretty darn close conversation. places in the country. So yeah, but like, USY and Ramah. I went to Jewish day school my whole life and Ramah and then went for a All right. Well, whoever wins, it's a very close competition. Anyway, um, 
we went to like a renewal e and and you guys know i've i've skewed a little bit more in this direction in my old age but we went to like a renewal e um service for like a bar mitzvah one and i was like what are they doing they're not doing it right and the the rabbi who was leading the service at one point said well we're now coming up on musaf we can sacrifice a goat or we can daven musaf or we can sing an igun and then everybody sang an igun and they went home you know 15 minutes earlier than we usually would right but like point being um we we've trans we've transformed the way we do things into a new spiritual system God willing, and I mean this very seriously, God willing, a thousand years from now, they're going to be saying, wait a minute, what was Musaf? Like they would just open, they would open their prayer books and they would say another Amidah. No, that's not what we do. We do fill in the blank of whatever they're going to be doing, right? Because it is going to continue to evolve, right? That like the... The fact that it's foreign, I think, speaks to how how powerful it is that we're still talking about it today, right? It, in some ways, the the confusion is um, is is a little delightful to me in that way. Um, I want to say, Rabbi Shachs, do you want? Mm, I want I want to talk for ten minutes about um, <laughs> Karen. Are you guys sinning now? Probably. Um, can we can we spend ten minutes on that on that second verse? Yeah, Is that groovy. Um, I, I'll I'll say that I I really love that. Just as there is a recognition that errors are a part of the game, as it were, writ large in the system. I, I also really love the fact that there is a, a recognition right off the bat that that leaders, that religious leaders, that the highest ranking official in the system makes mistakes, period, full stop. That's what we learn right off the bat. Lest lest you think that everyone else might be making mistakes, but not the anointed one, or the anointed one might make mistakes, but doesn't need to atone for them because of his status. Nope. Everybody makes mistakes including and especially the highest ranking person in the system, right? I, I think that is amazing, right? I, especially if you think about 2,500 plus years ago, I mean, we're, we're going to be telling the story next week, right? That Pharaoh was basically considered to be a god in Egypt. Gods don't need to make sacrifices to atone for their mistakes, right? So, So I just think it's like writ large pretty wonderful that it's that it's baked into the system like like right off the bat like that um i found a lot of groovy stuff on this we don't have time for all of it um but i i I found a really nice piece from urbanu bachia that i think summarized what what i like about this so much both like in terms of the concept and its ramifications because he was talking about um, like what what does this do right what does it do when people see that the high priest might bring this offering he said when people observe that even a high priest has to bring a sin offering they will be careful to return to god in repentance themselves they'll be encouraged when they see the high priest bringing such an offering reasoning that if god is willing to forgive the trespass of even such a highly placed individual as the high priest God would most certainly then be willing to forgive 
or ordinary people for their trespasses against him, right? The translation is a little wonky, right? Trespasses against him and, and sins and all that. But just the concept writ large that, you know, there there is modeling happening, A, in terms of recognizing that everyone, even and especially leaders make mistakes, but then also the fact that that there is modeling within the system as well in terms of what people might in turn learn by seeing that happening happening and i just i just think that that's a a really beautiful concept to be playing out that way um i have i have more to say on it but i'll pause there yes rabbi shots well it's just really interesting that you read um that you read this verse this way because i i also think it's it's fascinating that the high priest is being called out for doing something incorrect and I think that it actually leads us to think about the people more than it does the high priest because of what the punishment is, right? So if we look at the verse, let me see if I can share it. By the way, just spoiler alert, this is what your clergy are teaching tomorrow, uh, sans Rabbi Shapiro, but teaching tomorrow at Shabbat services. So if you're interested in this topic after eight minutes, you can join us tomorrow. Um I have a whole bunch of sources I can send over to you on it that I'm not going to get. You can also just give the drosh if you want. I'm happy to tell Rabbi Clickfield that you're available. Um, Pass. This, oh, okay. Uh, so the way that if you... But you guys are going to do great. Thank you so much. So if you read this, the it's saying that the high priest has done something wrong, right? Is somehow guilty about something. But then this next part, so that blame falls upon the people, Le'ashmat ha'am. And the, yeah, the priest is the one who gives the, the offering, but the, somehow that blame is now on the people. And I think as, as a person who, who leads spiritual community, and I, I'd be interested to hear what Rabbi Shapiro thinks of this, because he too does that, um, that <laughs> sometimes when he wants to, he does that. Oh. Um, it, it's an interesting part of of our responsibility as leaders to know that we are going to make mistakes. And I agree with Rabbi Shapiro that 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 it is wonderful that that is brought out, but that also the people in our midst need to recognize that by choosing a leader, by choosing a community, that if something is done, not egregious, but if something is done that is somehow a mistake or somehow the those those leading are guilty that that's also part of what being community is about because now that's also on you and and i don't think that should be a scary thing or a bad thing i i just think it's a complicated part of being in community it's a complicated part of being in a family right i have three siblings and anytime any of us did something wrong we were all punished it wasn't like oh, you know, Sammy did something and so only Sammy's going to go to bed early. No, we all shared a room. <laughs> if Sammy went to bed early, we all went to bed early. So it it's not just priest to community or rabbi to congregants, but or president to, you know, a country. It is it is a very uh it's a very interesting responsibility that those who are choosing to be part of something that involves other people, especially with leadership, um, that they are also taking on 
things that they might not even be um, aware of or feel like they are, are I don't want to use the word guilty of, but um, responsible for. I'll use that word. Did you not read it that way, Rabbi Shavira? You said a few different things. So read it, read it, read it, what, like, give me, I've, I have a number of responses and I want to make sure to respond to the questions you're, you're actually asking. You, um, no, no, no. Like, like there was a lot, there was a lot, there was a lot in there. Whatever question you think I'm asking, you can respond to. Oh, oh, good. Um, I'll, I'll respond locally and then broadly, and then maybe synthesizing the two and, Barbara just put a comment in all caps that I want to make sure to address because it looks like a very important comment since it was in all caps. I think the uh, caps was by accident. Oh, the caps was by accident. Um, well, you know, it's like you get those emails in all caps. It's like, ah, um, look, locally, I, I think it makes sense that if we're talking about it through the lens of the accidental mistake happening while the priest is in the middle of the priestly service, which was meant to impact the people. Yeah. Look, if the priest messes up while doing that, there is then ashimut on the people because the priest messed up in such a way that like, if, if what the priest usually does is to cleanse the people of guilt and then the priest messes up in that system, well, then there's, there's that inherent consequence, right? Like that's a very like, shot literal reading of that verse but i think you can read the verse that way right i think it's possible to read it in that more self-contained way i, I it was interesting because rashi and he's like the majority of the commentators seem to suggest that like like he's says the high priest may have given an erroneous halakhic ruling i don't think high priests were being post-scheme, but sure, um, right? And then the people, by following that ruling, all committed that sin by following that forbidden act, right? Like, I'm reading, right, this happens. I, I'm reading a certain text a certain way. I say this is what I think it means. And then people might say, although never take halachic advice from me, go to Rabbi Schatz instead, right? But <laughs> if you say, like, well, Rabbi Shapiro said I could do this, your guilt is then upon me because you listened to what I said. Correct. Right. So, so like I make the mistake, the guilt doesn't fall upon the people because I messed up. So it like just falls on them. The fault's yeah. on me. And, and there are ramifications for that because of the mm-hmm. office that, that I hold. Never go to me for halachic advice. Go to Rabbi. You know, Sforno, Sforno does say something similar. Sforno goes to in the complete, no, Sforno goes in the opposite direction. No. Well, then we looked yeah. at different. If so, he quotes Brachot in saying that if someone makes an error in prayer, it's a bad omen for him, right? So Piro makes an error no, in no, no. Da- go, go back, read the read the sentence before that though. He says exactly the opposite. The Torah begins with the high priest, the one who is least likely to commit a sin, implying that a sin by the high priest is mo- most likely the outcome of guilt by the people, their conduct having contributed to his committing such an error. He, he reads it the other way around. He says the Ashmata Am is what makes the priest make a mistake. He flips it right. around is the way I read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, w- right, which I actually don't think is is a complete 180, right? Because if you're influenced by the people who you are serving, there is a chance. 179. What? 179. 179 what? Instead of a 180. It's almost a complete turn. Oh, oh, oh. Ignore him. I'm trying. No, but it's close. It's it's flipped around, right? If the other way, if it's like most of them seem to be saying the priest messes up, so there's guilt on the people. He's saying the the people are 
not doing so great. And so that impacts the priest's service so that he makes him that that's, that's what I I thought. But I don't think I I agree with what you're, I agree with your summary, but I don't think that's a complete 180 because if you think about if, if you and I were rabbis at a different community, we might be teaching a different class or we might be sharing Torah in a different way because we are influenced by the people who we serve. So I don't think it's a complete 180 that that this is sure he made a mistake and it's not the people's fault, right? Though that that is what Sforno seems to be implying a, a little bit. But it it is reasonable to imagine that a decision that you make as a leader of a community, priest or rabbi or president or, you know, whatever, uh, that you are influenced by the people you serve. And so if they are doing something different that leads you to a mistake, it makes sense that you would then make a mistake that could be called against the people. But the thing that I wanted to bring up was right after this, and you derailed me, um, but it says here the Talmud. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> the Talmud quotes that if someone makes an error in their private prayer, it's a bad omen for them, right? They they uh, that prayer didn't go wherever prayers go. If, however, the shalich zibor, the shots, the person hired to pray on behalf of the people, makes an error, not only the person but all those on whose behalf the shots offered their prayers will suffer the consequences of his error. By the way, I'm not saying the shots because that's my last name. Shalich Zibor means leader or like cantor in modern day um, of a community. So it's, and that is halacha, right? That, that turns into halacha um, for what a shalich Zibor is supposed to do. If a shalich Zibor makes a mistake, that mistake then lands on the people, even if the people said the right words that the shalich Zibor said wrong on the bima. So I guess what I'm, what I got from Sforno that I really like is that it's, you are influenced by one another. It can't just be top down. It also has to be bottom up. <laughs> I, I agree with that conceptually. For me, it's not what I find evocative about the verse, but of course I agree with the concept. Joanna, and then we'll wrap up. I think one of the confusing things, at least now for me about this, is that in verse three, um, one tiny little one letter. Um, so if the um, Kohen um, has incurred guilt, and then we have two lit, um the the blame of the people and in order to translate this sentence into english that like little one letter that just means two in hebrew you need several words in english to make this make sense and i'm wondering if what is being presented in this verse is not so much that for one sin on this one sin that we're talking about the blame falls on the people but the opening is presenting a continuum If the priest sins, anything from the priest sinning a sin of his own guilt all the way down to the sins of the people, then you bring this kind of sacrifice. And then what that does is, as we've been discussing, place the emphasis on the fact that there is a possibility that the priest himself could sin. This isn't, you know, like you think about that Catholic model of the people going to confess to the priest. And I suppose without really knowing, as I'm saying this in Catholicism, maybe there is a system where priests have to go and confess to other priests. But like there's so much emphasis in Catholicism uh, on the sins of the people and, and like 
um, the people, you know, going and having that confessional with their priest, that this is sort of, you know, going out of its way to point out that we all sin, including the priest. So from the priest down to the people, this is what happens. Yeah. Well, and you're also reading it similar to Sforno, because le can also mean for, right? So for the sin of the people, right? That this, that this is not necessarily to, but because of, or as a consequence of. Okay, Rabbi Shapiro. Yes, Rabbi Schatz. You said you were going to rap, so I was waiting for Oh, that. I was just enjoying how you kept saying shots. And in my head, I was just thinking about the delightful Bethamism that if Cantor Chorney is leading a service with you, then... Rabbi Chorney is the shots and Rabbi Schatz isn't the shot. Joanna just told just asked me if my last name is connected to Shalif Sibor, and it is, in fact, that is how we got our last name. Of course. There you go. In rabbinical school, I wrote my first halacha um, paper on being a shots because first of all it allowed me to write a very fun title of that paper but also because uh, I just think it's fascinating that back in the day, especially when laws were being written about leading prayer, that there was so much that the prayer leader had to do and had to know and had to be accurate about because the belief was that it was that voice that was lifted up towards God, that we were all just kind of the, the backup singer, so to speak. And so um, so having, <laughs> I did that so that Rabbi Shafir would laugh. Um, so talking about what the Shaliyah Sibor needed in terms of competency. For those of you on the podcast, Robert Shapiro is now dancing. Um, uh, that is, I just find that fascinating, though it has nothing to do with what we're talking about in this Parsha. So you can wrap. Or over. does it? I don't know. I, I'll, I'll sum up by, by saying that given, given that is the way that we used to think about things, I'll like, tie it back in with verse three in terms of, I, I'll just like hold up again, how how powerful I think the idea is specifically that someone in a position of such leadership, how whichever way the guilt train is going, right? Um, th- that there's a recognition that mistakes do happen. And yes, even and especially that person is still obligated to make amends through the sacrificial system expanding outwards into today, right? The way we think about accountability and leadership, I think that that's really important. And going back into that first verse, we were talking about this sense that, again, we recognize we're going to slip up. We recognize we're imperfect. And even though the system through which we hold ourselves accountable and rectify and learn from our mistakes, um, that there's obviously a big gap in terms of what they did and what we do now, that there is that psycho-spiritual through line in terms of recognizing that truth and figuring out how to move forward from it. And I think that that is powerful and important. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Yeah, Shabbat shalom, everyone. Thank you for this uh, very interesting conversation on what could have been just two random verses. Vayikra, so much in store. So much in store. Stay tuned. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.